Welcome to Let's Face the Facts, the rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. Join us each week as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show. And now, here's your host of Let's Face the Facts, the wonderful David Almeida! Thank you, Matthew Arder. Welcome back to another show. It's another week. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. This week, Matthew and I are joined by actor, improviser, hysterical funny man, Philip Nolan. And he is one of those super funny people who is also incredibly smart. So he brings a a marvelous scholarly book-read component to the show, while at the same time also uh, just saying some of the freakiest, uh, funniest stuff. And uh, appropriately so, because this is a very wacky, freaky episode that we are about to talk about. We're going to be discussing Season 7, Episode 20, The Lady Who Came to Dinner, and the original air date was February 22nd of 1986. And I think we're ready to jump on in. Let's face the facts with Philip Nolan. Well, gentlemen, I'm just I'm just smiling ear to ear. It's so jolly to see you. I'm so happy to see your faces. Great you're actually not Philip smiling ear to ear. We can see you. You you you're not smiling. I'm ear just to ear. I, in your heart. Is it in your heart? Yeah, it's in my heart. My notes for this whole episode are literally three letters: W T F. Oh, oh no, really? Yeah, I, I am so I delighted down... to be part of this weird fucking. <laughs> But I but, feel like we all three can relate to this poor woman a little bit in oh. the fact that we have all we have all done not that we're lonely or all people that are going to die alone. But um, <clears throat> other than that, um, on top of that, we've all fucking been booked at those birthday parties where you walk in and you are a fart in a church. Oh, and God. it's just like you're like, oh, fuck me. When did this become my life? Uh, I think every meeting interruption I ever did for Disney was the same thing. I'd come in with a big rubber bulb horn and go, ah, and you know, the, oh, fuck. Yeah. So awful. So awful. Well, well, let's get started here. Welcome back, Philip Nolan, three-peat guest. I'm delighted to be with you. What an honor. Oh, I, I'm glad you think so. I, <laughs> I I wondered if you would ever talk to me again after watching this episode, uh, <laughs> as we were already discussing. You previously were here for the third episode, season one, episode three, The Return of Mr. Garrett. You were here yeah. at the dawn of the pod and the dawn of the show. Wow. And, this, I, and frankly, when I watched this episode, uh, I was astonished by the change in personnel and and appearances of the actors. And I mean, a river of time has gone by. <laughs> it's true. Philip, this is really a big aesthetic change that they did at the beginning of this season, at, the, at season seven. Somebody said, we need to get this show into the now. These are young girls. We need to make a color explosion. Spencer's gifts be the place where they work, and uh, I I didn't appreciate it at the time. At the time, I was like, "You are shitting on my childhood. What is this? Where is the school? Where is the cafeteria?" And now, 
I have to admit, looking back from all these years, I love the 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 mise en scène. I believe is the term we used in uh, film school. But anyhow, <laughs> I've been away from the narrative since the third episode because I, you know, I do not watch these things habitually. So you guys are going to have to fill me in. Is Mrs. Garrett written out of the show? Why is she absent? That's one of my first notes is, where is Mrs. Garrett? What happened to her? Mm -hmm. All valid questions, my dear boy. All valid questions. Mrs. Garrett had had it by this point, um, Philip, and she was ready to be written out of the show at season seven. They talked her into doing one more season, but it was a, a season light with Mrs. Garrett. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with the last season of the Golden Girls. There are a lot of episodes where B. Arthur was done. So they would like have the episode begin with her carrying her luggage to the front door and going, I'm off to see my uncle. And then she would walk back in and they'd be like, what happened this week? You know, so she just had, she wasn't written out yet. She's about to be written out. And it's voluntary in terms of Charlotte Ray was just like, okay, I've been doing this for six years. The girls are getting older. And she did say in her memoir, she wanted to make sure the show was strong enough that it could go on without her. She said the network suits were all like, the show is you, we can't do it. And they offered her a fuck ton of money to stay. And she was like, I'm, I'm going to be 60 and I have, I have more things that I want to do. And-, well, and she'd done it for six years. She'd done this show for six years, but she'd been playing the character for eight. She'd been on different strokes for two seasons before. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. This. Mm-hmm. So this season has been laying the groundwork for her departure right down to her not being in every episode. And uh, and this is this is one of them. And she's about to be replaced by the wonderful Cloris Leachman next season. Oh, um, <laughs> yes. Wow. But Philip, you also were back for season two, episode 14. So still a very early episode. It was yeah. Pretty Babies, the one where Tootie becomes the new face of high fashion. Yeah, and it got really creepy. Mm. Yeah. yeah, with our Rick Ocasek, Rick Springfield clone in the leather pants. Yeah. I was listening to that one again, just to remind myself of when you were here last and you and I having discussion where you went, Leather pants can't be comfortable, are they? I've never worn leather pants. And I'm like, no. Philip, I've worn faux leather pants and they are <laughs> torture. <laughs> Have you ever worn leather pants, Matthew? Oh my God, I can't count the times. What's awful is that, you know, like when you have like, when you sweat, but then like it doesn't absorb. So then the sweat gets cold on the inside of the left. So you're just constantly <laughs> like, you're just constantly like walking around like, ooh, ooh, ooh. like ooh. It's, every time you move, you're like, oh, there's no sweat down on the leg. Oh, God. No wonder the Germans went to war with the world twice. They all wore leather shorts. <laughs> and I'm sure it smells lovely if you have your own sweat, just this. <laughs> This Dutch oven of your sweat on the inside of animal skin. That must be, oof, that must be lovely. Urea! <laughs> so what we are discussing here today is season seven, episode 20, The Lady Who Came to Dinner, which had an original air date of February 22nd, 1986. 
This episode was uh, written by a team of crackpot writers. Story by Patrick Cleary. This is his second of two episodes. He previously wrote an episode called Jazz Bow, where Tootie and Natalie were off working at a summer camp and met this elderly African-American gentleman and discovered that he had had a uh, impressive uh, previous career as a jazz singer. Uh, but he was now in retirement and they were like, oh, we have to force him to go back and do that thing he says he doesn't want to do anymore. <laughs> it, it was very uncomfortable. Uh, also, Patrick Cleary, this uh, writer, he played one of the customers in the grand opening episode earlier in the season. I tried to find it. I looked at the video. He's credited as like garage sale customer or something, and I can't find it. I don't think he even had a line. I don't know why he's listed in the credits, but um, but that was just the story. The teleplay was written by Bart Lindsay and Robert Bilson. And who does not love a teleplay by Lindsay and Bilson? Those are the two names I think of when you say teleplay. <laughs> yeah, not that story shit, not written by, just the teleplay. You got to give them the idea. Yeah, they're yeah. the ones who did the important work. They broke it into dialogue. <laughs> and uh, guess what, gentlemen? I'm seeing that you are both sitting down. Good. I'm glad because <laughs> I'm about to hit you with the hard hitting news that Mr. Lindsay and Mr. Bilson have no other IMDb credits of any kind other than this one singular episode. I wonder why. <laughs> In the history of American television, this That's is it. astonishing. This is their legacy. That, yeah. That is truly astonishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is it? Really? Yep. This? nothing not even a special thanks to or they were in the writer's room as a you know associate oh producer for something what, this is what happened to them that, i mean i want to know whose cousin they were that they were like yeah. fuck my you know my cousin he's a writer can you just give him an episode of whatever you got yeah trying to build his resume nobody gives a shit about facts of life have him write an episode about that <laughs> jesus yeah. Uh, there was a recent episode where one of the co-writers was Charlotte Ray's son, <laughs> and he has no other writing credits. And it's like, oh, okay. That's it's a sure sign that a show is getting decadent. When you just start, you know, asking the guy who delivers the groceries, hey, you want to get a writing credit? I know. Who are you as a writer? They've acknowledged mm. that on Family Guy. They've like this, a couple jokes in this came from the FedEx delivery guy. So... <laughs> <laughs> So, Philip, now is the time oh. where we like to put our guest on the spot. Okie doke. If you would please provide a one to two sentence synopsis of the entire episode we have all just enjoyed. And uh, <laughs> think of it in the style of TV guide, short and brief. And with the new edition of Matthew as my co-host, if your brief description gets too unbrief, you will be judged and critiqued instantaneously. No pressure, go. Just when you thought it couldn't get weirder, a Alice in Wonderland themed party goes hilariously awry when an apparently homeless woman shows up on the doorstep to entertain, but surprises are in store, including the strangest appearance by 
a married couple in the history of sitcom. <laughs> that was perfect. And I will go on record as saying Philip Nolan can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. True. I've always said that. Beautifully done, sir. Thank you. That's much better than my description, which was um, in this episode of Facts of Life, Natalie goes to Fort Lauderdale. natalie lucked out got a trip to fort lauderdale yeah for this episode yeah lisa welch will ask to be written out of the uh losing virginity episode for natalie that's coming up two seasons she was like yeah i can't be a part of this i write me out i think mindy Cohn might have done the same here just saying according to everything i've read she was filming the boy who could fly that's right So we have a lot to discuss and go through. Let's get to it. Not only do we have no Mrs. Garrett in this episode, we have no Natalie. This is the only episode that she does not appear in. So um, they're in the store. It is Tootie and Joe and Andy. Joe is sitting on the counter, which Matthew really hates Philip. And Andy is also sitting on the counter behind the cash register. He's cute. I don't mind it so much. (laughs) <laughs> and uh tootie is having a tootie freak out where tootie is talking too loud is being too fussy and fastidious but what she's uh having her freak out about is that blair's birthday is four days away they haven't any they don't have anything planned yet andy does say it's only a birthday and lovely expositional dialogue where Tootie says, it's not only a birthday, it's her 21st birthday. Her parents can't make it. Mrs. Garrett may not be back in time. And Natalie is still in Fort Lauderdale with her grandmother. So it's all on us. Exposition achieved. Congratulations, Wilson and Lindsay or whatever the hell your names are. Yeah, wow. How terribly efficient. Um, insanely yes uh so tootie is having a freak out about all of these things what is she not having a freak out about the fact that she is wearing high heels and socks and i (laughs) i I just cannot abide that and uh, it was 1986 david but dorothy from the wizard of oz high heels and with little little ankly socks yes yes ugh the I'm go-go's a, yeah the go-go's madonna. the bangles madonna yeah okay i guess Absolutely. I, let me just put it this way i never wore socks with my high heels in 1986 it's all I'm you're doing. a lady <laughs> isn't this also the era of fingerless lace gloves yeah mm-hmm. yeah so they never went goes. yeah they never went that crazy they really didn't yeah. but yeah, yeah. Uh, fingerless gloves. They're just like Madonna. They remind me of their 80s and they're completely useless. <laughs> <laughs> so as they're talking about what they could possibly do, Blair passes through uh, with cookies. We had a couple of uh, an episode a couple of weeks ago, Philip, where Blair and Joe, who had been helping in the cafeteria for four years and had helped Mrs. Garrett run a gourmet food store and bakery for two years, they could not figure out the intricate complexities of a fucking peanut butter cookie recipe. <laughs> Somehow Blair has thankfully cracked the cookie code. So Blair is coming back and putting out cookies on the counter where that's the section of the store that's supposed to be Mrs. Garrett's section. She's the baked goods 
lady and it was you'll work whenever you want to you'll sell cookies or bake something when you feel like it you can take it easy and we all share the burden of owning this store but now Blair is the one holding down the cookie fort David Matthew I love you and I'm going to regret this but how have you made it this far into this episode without acknowledging that it is not Blair's upcoming 21st birthday because two episodes ago, bitch was already 21 going to Atlantic City. I, Literally I two episodes ago. What are you talking about? I mean, the girl's ages, it's fine. I'm saying I'm giving you permission to obsess about the ages for a second. For Christ's sake. Oh, Philip, sit down. You because you're gonna this is survive. a continuity error on the level of Watson's traveling Afghanistan wound in Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> if you only knew how many times I've said that, Philip, on this pod. <laughs> I do freak out about the girls' ages because it is inconsistent. They will de-age them or re-age them. And yeah, Blair should already be 21 in this episode. And only one other season has there ever been a celebration of Blair's birthday during. And one of the intellectual leaps, Philip, I have made is that conveniently, the entire cast of the show, all of them, including Mackenzie Aston and George Clooney, all of them are April or May birthdays, Philip. Interesting. I mean, it's a weird, bizarre coincidence, but yeah. because of that, every season, all of them are one age. It's not, oh, well, this is February, so Charlotte Ray had a birthday in December. I thankfully don't have to deal with that shit. I can just say they're one age the entire season. So this whole season, uh, Blair is 21, as is Lisa Welchel. She's uh, same age. But uh, yeah, they even went to Atlantic City two weeks ago. And Blair could not have gambled in Atlantic City were she not 21. And yet... Here we are at Blair's 21st birthday, and I don't see any need to discuss it any further, Matthew. Do you, do you really want to make a big deal about this? No, you know what? This week, I'll refrain from making such a huge deal about the girls' ages. Yeah. Gentlemen, continuity errors, uh, frankly, are the least of this episode's problems. <laughs> yes. Blair's age is much less of a concern to me, Matthew, also, than Blair's hair oh it i i put i put the tally at three cans of aquanet three (laughs) full cans and that's the best you could do really (laughs) Uh, we we have this cluster we're in the middle of this clump of bad hair shows for lisa welchel and i don't know what's happening it is going to get worse next week believe it or not well you know how they hired these guys who'd never written before to do the teleplay (laughs) Apparently, they were doing that in the cosmetology as well. Someone's cousin, you know. I think she's letting it grow out. And she's in between, like, you know, you know how it is I think when so. you get in between. Letting it grow out. <laughs> Maybe that's who these guys were. These guys were like uh, hair and makeup assistants. And they wrote the show, but they were busy with, with the writing of the show that they couldn't actually do the hair and makeup. Oh, this God. episode. They were high on Aquanet when they wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless. 
Anyway, as Blair has floated in and out, they do some wonderful sitcom lying. Matthew hates sitcom lying, and I have uh, to agree. Oh, yeah. But Blair finally leaves to go to class, drops an envelope. There's a poem in it. The poem leads them to go to the house behind the shop. And uh, in uh, the copy of Alice in Wonderland, Blair has left another poem. And the poem says, think of a girl. She's pretty and blonde. Now you found something of which she is fond. So Tootie instantaneously says, oh, well, it's obvious. This is an Alice in Wonderland. She wants to be Alice and she wants us to put on a Wonderland theme party. So we'll do that. We'll make it a tea party. We'll do bread and butter. Joe is like, I think you might need to do a little bit more. And Tootie says, well, we could hire some entertainment. Hey, there's always ads in the paper for people who entertain at parties. And uh, so Tootie starts leafing through the newspaper and we have a, a, a funny hard cut, comedically speaking, where Joe says, no way, I'm not dressing up as the Mad Hatter. No funny hats or big shoulders or big bow ties and no big shoes. That's where I draw the line. Cut to. Joe dressed in a fursuit as the White Rabbit. This is probably one of the most overused sitcom tropes ever. And to see it here just being trotted out, it's like, well, we, you know, here's, here's a joke we can just put in. But they belabor I, it for like 10 oh, minutes. It's like, we know what's gonna happen. We yeah. know what's the, the joke. You hear the train whistle way in advance before you see the train on this one. Way in advance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now we are at the party. Anything else on the scenes leading up to getting us to this shitty party? How do you feel about uh, Mackenzie Aston, Philip? Well, I'll tell you something. I, uh, I looked up Mr. Mackenzie Aston because I thought, why do I know him? And... Um, he has had, I mean, what's remarkable about this awful episode of a series that has become decadent is that Clooney is there. Clooney, one of the most recognizable stars in the world, is here getting slumming in this crap, right? And Mackenzie Aston, son of John Aston, yes, that John Aston, Mr. Gomez, uh, he grew up into a rather attractive uh, leading man type. And he has an IMDB longer than your arm. He worked in TV and is still working forever. I mean, ben, really, really successful. His IMDB is longer than his penis, which you see in- um, Welcome in, in, to the men's group is the name of it, I think. Oh, he goes full peen, Philip, in a movie. You get oh to my! See everything. I mean, he's older than he is than in Facts of Life. Obviously, yeah. he's, he's not nobody, twelve. Nobody wants to see that unless you're David Almeida. No, but no, um, your yeah. pie hole. <laughs> yeah, no, Mr. Aston was uh, he was a really cute kid, and he grew up into a very attractive adult and has worked and worked and worked. So and, that's so that's that's a lesson about the business is that you know. It, nothing's a deal breaker. You can you can be attached to something that really has almost no merit and still go on to achieve great things later. 
So, and you saw who his mother is also, Philip, right? I don't recall. Oh, interesting. Uh, his mother is uh, an actress you might've heard of, Patty Duke. <gasps> what? Yeah. So we're convinced that he went home with these shitty scripts and John Aston and Patty Duke were like, well, if you're going to be the best turd floating in that toilet. So here, let's get like, some line readings. Mom, I don't want to run my lines again. When I was your age, I had a fucking Oscar. You're going to run your lines. <laughs> wow. Which personality is this talking? Can I talk to nice mommy now? Can, can I talk to Jane? Can Jane come out, please, mom? I'm sure, I'm sure Mr. Aston is a, a good actor and that's why he's mm -hmm. had such a wonderful career. But being Hollywood royalty is also helpful when your mom is Patty Duke. Yeah. I, I mean, you're already in the system. You don't, there's no effort required to open any door when mommy is Patty Duke. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. <laughs> there's no, there are no dues to pay. You just say, you want to see Patty Duke's kid? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and if it's not Patty Duke's kid, do you want to look at 24 year old George Clooney every week? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <I'm> <laughs> just, <laughs> I don't need to hear him read a book. I don't need to hear him read anything. Just bring him in and let me look at but him. But again, oh. again, George, one of the reasons George has a career is because of Rosemary Clooney. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you oh, know, fuck it's me. so easy to be in showbiz if you're in a showbiz family. The doors are standing open all around yeah. you already. Yeah. No knocking required. True. <laughs> well, we're at this party uh, now with all of these crazy, uh, impressive Alice in Wonderland costumes. This always fascinates me. This is a, a television trope as well. Like, and I don't know what it is. Like you see, probably see it on Facebook too. Like friends that are like, oh, we had a great Gatsby party. And everybody's perfectly costumed in a great. And I'm like, you just have these fucking, I'm a drag queen. And the best I got is a nun costume in my, in my fucking closet. <laughs> what, who, who the fuck is sitting around a whole group of people with fucking theme park level fucking Alice in Wonderland costumes like George Clooney was like oh well thank god it's Alice in Wonderland I'll just be the Jack of Diamonds let's go Woo, thank god I've yeah. got that already and, yeah. and Tootie had that fucking Mad Hatter I don't know I mean maybe they rented it out maybe the, the Lindsay and Lion forgot to put it in the, in the script but um, <laughs> but the deal is yeah, it is. It is definitely a trope where you have a themed party and the people are costumed a lot better and a lot more professionally. And I don't think there are that many costume rental places, you know, in Lanford, Illinois, when Roseanne throws one of her big Halloween parties, that type of thing. Uh, Philip, you are not aware, but uh, the our tens of listeners are aware that Matthew and I had the opportunity to interview and strike up a casual friendship with the woman who is the costumer for the last three seasons of The Facts of Life. How about that? Her name is Diana Eden. She is in Las Vegas now. She teaches costuming at the University of uh, Nevada at Las Vegas. She is 81 years old, still sharp as a tack. And, and has, still teaching? And still teaching. Wow. Yeah. Um, more friend of me, really, I think. Um, than, um, okay. Uh, it's true that I email Diana out of I, um, respect. I text her. 
But yeah, Matthew and Diana text. So apparently they're totes BFFs. And I'm not bitter at all about that. It does not bother me in the least. So we can just drop that, okay? The subject. Um, so I did write to her and say, okay, here's an episode that has some costuming things, wondering if you have any stories or rem- remembrances or recollections. And I'll preface this by saying she doesn't have a lot. So I'm probably building this up for nothing. And I said, especially Matthew is gonna wanna know about the, the fittings for George Clooney's tights. I did tell her that. And uh, (laughs) so when she responded to me, the email I got from Diana was, uh, David, how I wish I remembered more, but these shows were produced so quickly every week that we just got the work done and I really don't remember much. George certainly looks gorgeous, when doesn't he, in his red tights and wig and hat. I have no idea where I got his costume. What I can tell you is that Kim's Mad Hatter costume came from a company called EC2, which stands for Elizabeth Courtney 2, where many, many of the costumes from the Sonny and Cher show and the Carol Burnett show ended up. So most designed by Bob Mackie or by Rhett Turner. I also recognize some of the background actor costumes, notably Tweedledum and Tweedledee. You might be able to find some photos of these if you do some type of a search. Uh, I did do a search and unfortunately there is so much Alice in Wonderland content out there, so many adaptations. Uh, I couldn't find anything, but uh, basically what she's saying is, speaking to what you're saying, Matthew, the level of costuming is so good because several of these likely were designed by Bob Mackey Mm. and now they're in peak skill. And I would have been, if I had been a fly on the wall of that set, I would have stolen those red tights when um, George Clooney (laughs) took them off. I would have made tea with those things. I would have (laughs) dipped them in hot water and drank it. Okay. Uh, I bet those tasted like cinnamon Teddy Grahams and Doritos. (laughs) Mm. So the last thing I did mention specifically to her was of all the costumes, Uh, There is a a joke, I guess it's called a joke, where they ask Andy, what are you supposed to be dressed like? And he says, I'm a munchkin. And of course, they're like, there are no munchkins in Alice in Wonderland. And he's like, yes, there are. And they're like, no, that's Wizard of Oz. And so he runs off and says, there got to be munchkins somewhere. If not, I'm going to write them in. (laughs) He is clearly dressed like Peter Pan, right? Yeah, it looks like a Peter Pan outfit. There is no question. This is a Peter Pan outfit. And so when you yeah. said, I'm a munchkin, I would have been like, well, you, you couldn't, isn't the obvious joke on Peter Pan? Well, what does that have to do with Alice? And have him say, Peter Pan, the Lost Boys, Wonder Wonderland. And have them say, Andy, never, never land. And have him be like, oh, fuck a duck shit. <laughs> <laughs> But the last thing Diana did write in her note to me was, as for Mac, (laughs) she calls him Mac, I have no idea. Looks like a store-bought costume, perhaps with some upgrading in the workroom. No idea about the bunny suit. (laughs) So her memories of this are scant. And honestly, she's 81 years old, and this was 35 years ago. I, I am happy for even the tiniest little bit of info like this. Uh, Bob Mackie connection to these costumes. So thank you, Diana Eden. I know you aren't listening, but I just want to make sure to give her her props. And uh, we are going to be talking to her some more in the future about some other shows. 
somebody else talk about what happens when Blair shows up at her party. Blair shows up in a in a very tasteful, one of the more tasteful outfits, actually. Uh, I, th- I think it's a black dress. She's got a necklace on. She's looking very nice. And uh, here comes the big comic turn. We learn um, somewhat counterintuitively that her clue that she left in a book called Alice in Wonderland uh, referenced the Wonderland Cafe, which is a, a, a restaurant where she wants to eat. How she expected anyone to get that from her note is one of the many illogical leaps the audience is apparently prepared to accept on the nod from these writers. I, I, was, I was furious on Tootie's behalf and I wanted to slap her. I wanted to slap Blair and say, how do you expect us to know that that is what you meant? You know, did we have conversations about the Wonderland Cafe? Apparently not. No one, there was no history of her pining for the Wonderland Cafe. Oh, yeah, yeah. And honestly, you're 21. I have to follow a scavenger hunt to find out what kind of party you want, for Christ's sake. How about, hey, Blair, what do you want to do for your party? Hey, why don't we go to the Wonderland Cafe? Okay, I, but then I guess Lindsay and Lion wouldn't have had something to write. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. The people in general, now we're talking about life as well as sitcoms, but people who are precious about their birthdays, it's just like... <sighs> I get it for a landmark birthday, like it's your 21st. But yeah, I've, I've always been the type of person and surrounded by people who are like, oh, it's a big birthday coming up for you. What do you want to do? It's your special day, you tell us. And the idea that, well, I want a surprise. Well, I want to, and, and for Blair to be so ungracious and whiny about, yes, I to go there. She shows up. And everyone she knows has gone through a fuck ton of trouble to create the most elaborate costumes since, you know, I don't know, the, I don't know, the International Drag Olympics. I don't know. These <laughs> costumes are just, they're outrageously detailed and over the, t- you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's tea laid out. There's a lot of trouble. It's been taken and she doesn't even blink at it. She just says, no, oh, this is what I wanted. Yeah. You know? no, no, the, the whole thing of, oh, <laughs> you misunderstood. Well, isn't that just a crazy wacky premise? I guess I could have been clearer and look at all the trouble you clearly went to. Yeah. It, oh, fuck no, 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 no. This is again, emotionally, completely illogical. Any reasonable human being would have laughed at the misunderstanding and sat down and enjoyed the party. End of episode. <laughs> you yes. Know? Yes. Uh, truly. Oh, oh my God. I can't believe you did all this. I love it. Let's get a picture. Someone get a camera. We have to get my picture with all of these. You know, none of that happened. No. She, she didn't. Yeah. We're going to laugh about this someday. Yeah. Nope. Clearly not. Nope. Oh, yeah. Tell the walrus and the carpenter over there to go fuck themselves. I want to go to a cafe and get what? 
I don't know, they have a great salad bar? What the fuck? <laughs> it's just a goddamn restaurant. And any normal 21-year-old woman would have been like, you got me George Clooney in red tights? <laughs> Thank Everybody you. Everybody out. Everybody out. <laughs> Party's over. Oh, bless. So, but but the the spectacle is not over yet. Oh, no, 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 no. We've just gotten, you know, Blair in her little snit and no sooner does this all come about and Blair is a fucking bitch about it. Uh, then we get the entertainment and here she is coming in the front door. How she knew to make her entrance is a very good question. And she introduces herself <laughs> as the one and only life of the party, Louise LeBeau. Louise LeBeau. She throws off her cape and she is dressed, uh, honestly, perfectly for what she does. She's dressed like a dollar store Carmen Miranda with the headdress with flowers or fruit or something on it. She's got bagels hanging for her earrings. Um, she's she's you know dressed in like a sort of a sarong type of a thing she has got all kinds of props attached to her and uh, she comes in and starts uh, i'm going to use the word singing that's a very strong word um she, she sounds like a woman with copd <laughs> trying to sing this song i have i can speak to this now because i can tell you I used to work with someone that would put on a dress and perform at the opening of an envelope. <laughs> the amount of times this person called me and said, hey, you want to do a birthday party with me? And I would tell her the famous Philip Nolan line, I would rather eat a live cat because this is how it's going to look. This is how it's going to be. You are going to be the fart in church at this party. And first of all, Till There Was You is not an opening number. Yeah. Of all the fucking numbers they could have given her to sing, everything's coming up roses. Um, fucking. Or party, some type of a party song about celebrating or a birthday or something. But I'm willing to give the writers the benefit of the doubt and that this song choice was not up to them. It was about money and copyright and usage. I'm but, willing to believe that this was the most economical choice for a producer who did not want to blow a budget so that a woman could sing a cappella, a song that had rights that were not available. I feel like there was something in the public domain, even if she did a goofy happy birthday to you, though happy birthday, well, at the time, I think it was considered public domain, but, um, Here's the deal. They have three songs in this, Philip. She sings Till There Was You, which is by Meredith Wilson from The Music Man. She sings Cabaret, Kander and Ebb from Cabaret, the musical. And then she also, at the very end, when she feels like she's free, she sings Happy Days Are Here Again, which is a Depression era standard. I'm sure somebody famous wrote it, but... Um, but yeah, there are three songs and they had they would have had to pay royalties on all three of those songs. And it is I'm with you, Philip. I'm sure that informed their choices. But it's like you also could have gone to the public domain and said, what, what is anything 
Yeah. You could have started with Happy Days Are Here Again. That's yeah. a great opening way to burst into a room. You know, it's yeah. high energy. Yeah, that's, true. Very well, true. Why yeah. wasn't that the opener? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's a birthday party. It's like, I'm here the entertainment to celebrate someone's 21st birthday. Till yeah. There Was You is the love song. It's it's a beautiful, pretty love song. So she's singing, there are bells on the hill, but I never heard them ringing. Oh. No one ever heard them at all. Till There Was You. <laughs> With the friggin' horn. And that's it. She is in between the lines and the stanzas. She is telling awful jokes, awful, yeah. worse than dad yeah. jokes. Yeah, these are like, not good enough quality jokes to make it onto a Bazooka Joe gum wrapper. No, no, not at all. And in between, she tells a joke and honks her her big gigantic Harpo Marx horn. That's like her butt um bump. Yeah. At one point, she pulls out a, a a trumpet and blows a trumpet. She shoots a cap gun in the air and someone throws a rubber chicken down. She does a jitterbug dance and and these are all the things that this actress did at the audition for this episode. She brought in a little suitcase that had a rubber horn, a trumpet, so she could show the producers in her audition, she could play the trumpet. She probably brought a cap pistol from home. Uh, I'm willing to bet that she, in her audition, had to demonstrate wacky skills, and this was the best she could come up with. Maybe these writers were her vaudevillian writers from the 40s. Could be. And they never could quite break Uh. into television, and now we know why. How about we talk about this actress? Um, it's bringing up, thank you for bringing up the audition and the fact that this role did have to be cast and this is the one that they chose. She's not awful. I don't not like her, but there's also a part of it that feels like, why didn't they try to get somebody famous? Why didn't they try to, it's like, where was Imogene Coca? This could have been a wonderful showcase role for a comedic actress of yesteryear martha what would martha ray have done with this are you kidding me i it's funny you say that because when i was watching her i was like she looks like she would be like martha ray's standby in hello dolly or something you know what i mean like back in the 60s she looked like like or like like martha ray might be on the colgate comedy hour but we got this lady on the texaco comedy hour you know (laughs) like and again, it's the, the, the answer is almost certainly money. Uh, money sure. is the driving decision behind a lot of casting decisions. And yeah. it's, the, it's the driving decision behind a lot of writing. Frequently, writers will uh, put in an episode a waiter at a restaurant or whatever who has a line. And of course, if you speak, your pay is more. So, mm-hmm. you know, producers say, listen, let's get rid of all of these five lines and under parts and just save a penny. Mm-hmm. So this, I'm sure this woman was just hired off the street from a general audition call that came through her agent. Well, and she yeah. was willing to work for scale. You know, she wasn't, she was probably paid the minimum. Well, I wondered if she had any type of previous, there is a sense of, has this woman performed much? Like it, it's so weird mm-hmm. how, uh, she's a veteran comedic actress, and yet there's a, a uh, would you use the word unseasoned? Like there's a, I don't know, maybe she's using a lot more of her, of her skills to make this work as well as it is, which isn't well at all. But um, I just felt that 
the performance did not give me the vibe that this is an actress who previously made her living being funny. Okay. Or telling Good. jokes. Yes, that's uh, a great way to put it. This, I agree. This is, this is an actress who was cast for her looks. And if she has worked, and I, I don't know her name and I didn't do any research, but any work she has done, I'm sure it's because she looks a certain way and she's just a commercial working actress. And in this case, she looked like she was trying to play a comic, that it was not innate. You know, this is yeah. not... Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. She's trying to play a comic without necessarily being a comic. That's why I'm like, I'm even thinking like Jane Connell, Gene Stapleton, even when the son and the daughter show up, I'm like, oh, Ruth Buzzy. Ruth Buzzy was young. She was only uh, 50 at the time and they needed someone older. But even those actresses where, honestly, it's a role that Charlotte Ray would have played on a different show. It would have totally been a Charlotte Ray role. Uh, but this actress is Betty Keen, K-E-A-N, in the role of Louise LeBeau. She is a veteran actress of uh, big screen comedies from the 40s and the 50s, but not a lot of them. I think she looks like the love child of Kathy Bates and Kathleen Freeman. Remind me, Kathleen Freeman? Kathleen Freeman, uh, she was in the Jerry Lewis comedies. She's Phoebe Dinsmore in Singing in the Rain. Ta, te, te, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She was yeah, a nun in the that. Blues Brothers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, musical theater people know her that she's the old lady accompanist in the musical Full Monty and the original Broadway cast. And, uh, but, and again, it's like, what would Kathleen Freeman have done with this? But um, yeah. the deal is, Betty Keene originally was part of a nightclub comedic duo where they sang as well as did comedy bits with her sister, Jane Keene, the Keene sisters. Well, with that resume, it's making more sense why she was hired. Yeah. And here's a funny thing. Her sister, Jane Keene, has been on The Facts of Life. Recently, in the episode where Natalie uh, tried to sell a bunch of beefcake calendars for the, the swimming team at, at uh, the college, uh, this woman comes in and is supposedly a friend of Mrs. Garrett's and is on the board for Langley and is like, yeah, we think it's inappropriate. And we, we, we really don't think these calendars should be out there. And we, we don't really think you should be selling them. And uh, yeah, so the, the character's name was... Um, Shit, I didn't write it down. Anyway, that was season seven, episode five, Men for All Seasons. And if you watch it again, you're like, oh, I see the resemblance. Totally sisters. Absolutely. But anyway. <laughs> it's funny you say but, because that's her big, you know, technique that emerges. This, this comic uh, prefaces every joke with by thrusting her hands out on either side and saying, but, and you know mm -hmm. that, that here comes another Bazooka Joe or lesser quality and joke. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of cringy and oh, yeah. uh, the audience does applaud her. I mean, there's, there is some fun to it and there is a, a WTF-ness of, okay, sure. If the, if the, if the party has already gone so wrong that Blair is in a snit and mad at them for not reading her mind, sure, this would be the next thing that would happen. And yeah, and the way the episode is written, the, 
I would guess the only kind of surprising thing about the writing here is that you we don't know yet that this is the plot. This is the actual plot is this woman. Mm-hmm. She, it seems to be just another kitchen sink, weird gag, another thing going wrong at the party. It, you know, it seems like the party should be the focus and the aftermath of this mistake should be the focus, but it isn't. It's actually this woman who comes in to entertain at the party that's the whole locus of 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 the plot, and uh, and so in that way, the episode surprised me in a way that was actually interesting to me. Is that it took this left turn? Okay, sure. It is a lot of setup to getting her into the show. Oh my god, and it completely is. unnecessary. <laughs> exactly. Now, um, we then go to the next morning up in the bedroom. Blair is sleeping. She will be awake soon. But Joe and Tootie are kind of having a little bit of a post-mortem about the whole thing. And uh, then when Blair does wake up, we do have, I think this is good dialogue. This is Joe and this is the character of Joe, where she says, look, Blair, we better have this out right now because we're tired of apologizing. If you weren't so difficult about your birthday, you could have gotten a nice blouse instead of Louise, which would have made us all happy. Most of all me, because I got rabbit fur in my ears and a rash down my back. I love that. That is very Joe about, would you get the fuck over this? Because I'm not going to keep making amends to you for this. I love this. And finally, Blair does say, well, I suppose it is the thought that counts. It's like, yeah, bitch, where was that last night? So at least there is that. And then Blair does say, well, yeah, and thanks for cooking me breakfast. It smells delicious. At which point they're like, wait a minute. We're, we're not cooking you breakfast. We're sitting up here talking to you. Where is that wonderful smell coming from? And off camera, you hear, there are bells on the hill of the horn honking. Louise is still there. Dum, dum, dum. And we go to commercial. Yep. Cliffhanger. Wow. And that's when you get the creeping feeling that we've taken a left turn from a a classic kind of misunderstanding sitcom trope. Oh, you didn't mean this kind of party uh, to (laughs) a completely out of left field focus on this entertainer that came in and was very strange. Yeah. Well, we go from what a wacky party to um, sometimes old people become the children and mental illness is real. And it's like, what? This took, this got dark for me a little bit. Like took a little bit of a turn. Yeah. Because what what we come up with in the second half of the show is we learned that Louise stayed over. Tootie let her because she missed her last bus. And I guess nobody just wanted to drive her home. But whether they have cars is always in question, Philip, from episode to episode. Uh, and then it becomes the rest of the episode is the girls not being able to tell this woman to get the fuck out of our house. Leave. And it's awkward. It is awkward. Absolutely. But I'm not sure awkward in a comedic way. It's just awkward. And And this woman's inability to think, I don't know these people at all. And I'm just, 
I'm not only moved into their house, I'm wearing this woman's clothes. <laughs> like She's wearing yeah. Mrs. Garrett's clothes. And I actually, for a moment, believed that the writers were trying to set up that this woman was going to join the cast. I'm with you, Philip. I, I had that in my notes, too. I did think, oh, Charlotte Ray was on her way out. Cloris Leachman had not been, I think, considered at that point. Part of me was like, was this a little feeler? Was this a, well, you know, she's leaving to quote unquote, go on the road with a dinner theater, but you know, if, if the, you know, cards and letters start piling into the network about how much they loved her, we could always make her the new Mrs. Garrett that takes care yeah. of her. I, I worried and wondered that myself. Did you, Matthew? No, because I, <laughs> I, I no, I, I mean, I knew that wasn't the case at all. So I did never entered my head, but what did enter my head was we have had Ah, episode without Mrs. Garrett. And already the producers were like, we got to get an old lady in here, you guys. Mm. How can we, we can't go one more episode without an old lady watching over these girls and cooking for them. Like you're supposed to be trying out things without an old lady in it. You're supposed to be focusing this show now on four young women. What? We've, it feels uh, like producers were extremely nervous to tamper with the formula in mm-hmm. any way. Seems yep. that way, doesn't it? Yep. So, that to the point of concern. just having any older woman in the room. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> oh. Well, oh, so we weird. do get an attempt to ask her when she was going to be moving on. We get some tears that are obviously fake. Uh, even Joe, Joe is unable to. Uh, to tell her to go fuck herself. And the best we can do is Joe says she'll only be here a few more days. They're painting her apartment and she's allergic to the fumes. So she just needs to wait for the paint to dry. Yeah. And again, the fake tears, the obvious uh, painting my apartment, uh, you know, excuse for not wanting to leave. This woman is not being painted, pardon the expression, in a flattering light. She's... A con artist, maybe we think at this point. Yes, you know, and yes, so she's evil. We think at this point. Strange. See, I got more mental illness. I got more like <laughs> I got more approaching Alzheimer's kind of situation. Yeah, you know well, what I mean? But, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have gone Alzheimer's, but I think certainly just getting to that place of that th- was this going to be a show about homelessness or elderly homelessness uh-huh that's what i thing. thought i honestly thought this woman lives on the street yeah. and this is this is the real theme of the show yeah and at the very least while she's there she is cooking she is cleaning she is doing their laundry uh but at one point finally yeah here here look at wash my underwear for me strange woman while you're wearing our friend's underwear apparently just her sweater Yeesh. just her Weird. sweater Weird. <laughs> so finally, uh, they start doing some detective-like thinking and Tootie realizes, wait a minute, all the cooking, the cleaning, this and that, she's someone's mother. There's no way she does all this stuff and didn't raise kids. And it's like, well, how would we get in touch with her family? Just, well, how'd you get her? She says, I just called the number. We'll call the number. Maybe some other family lives with her. And that's what they do. And next thing we know, we have the son and the daughter-in-law. Oh my God, guys. I could do an hour just on this bizarre 
cameo alone. Remember what I said about writers and these little five and under parts that pop up in sitcoms? Where do I fucking begin with these two? Now, here's my theory. Do it, do it. Two people, two people come in. They look like the same person dressed as a man and dressed as a woman. They're almost, they wearing the same pair of glasses, mm. by which I mean two identical pairs of same rims. Mm -hmm. It really does look like a man and a man in that same man with a wig on dressed as a woman. And it wasn't until that actress spoke that I thought, well, I guess that is a biological female. Also, <laughs> also, they they talk and act like robots. They talk like robots. They stare straight ahead unblinkingly at the very end when they leave at the end of the scene, they wave identically to each other. I mean, this is clearly a, an attempt to make these characters completely unrelatable, in my view, so that this woman will be more sympathetic. Because if these people came in and they were concerned, and how could you leave us? And oh my God, what are you thinking? Are you all right? Then she's even more the villain, or it gets darker and a stranger kind of Alzheimer-y thing, like you were saying, Matthew. But the fact that these two wind-up toys come through the door and they're and the costuming choices, the fact that they look alike. Mm -hmm. It's a male and a female, but yeah. it's, you know, robot twins come through the door. So weird. So fucking weird. Agreed. And they're gone in a blink, you know? They're gone yeah. in a blink. The other thing that contributes to this is her hair. I don't know if it's her hair. It looks like a wig. It looks like a wig style, not a hairstyle. So you, I'm not sure about that. Uh, that wig is called a tawny wig. Is it, it tawny? Is very popular among drag queens in the late '90s and from the '80s. Yeah, Charles yeah, Bush but... had them in every shade of red, didn't he? Yes. Yes. Charles, I'm sorry, Charles Pierce had them yes. in every shade of red. But you've got that going on, and I'm not sure because they were in a slightly tighter close-up than you would have expected, and I'm not sure I remember any. There were so few coverage shots of all of them. I can't tell if either he is short or she is tall, maybe a combination of the both, but she is taller than him by a good three or four inches, plus the hair. And her jawline, she has this big, strong, masculine jawline. I was, I found myself squinting, trying to see an Adam's apple, wondering, <laughs> am, I, am I looking at a man in drag and is that the gag here? Yeah, the, she is, looks is like that just like an extra fucking thing. You know what would be funny <laughs> is if the daughter in law was a fucking guy in a dress. <laughs> you know, it's because God knows they've done every other illogical goddamn thing. <laughs> and I found myself just, you know, just getting angry at this little, sh this is the shallowest possible writing you can imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's... these characters are literally disposable. It's just like they they don't have, they were not directed to be humans. They were directed in the opposite direction. Be wooden, be stiff, mm -hmm. be robotic. They're, they're trying to take all the uh, humanity out of these characters because they don't want them to be interesting. 
They're just there to deliver their plot point and go. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't, ugh, it is, I, I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head that this was the chance to make sure that Louise, the mother, looks sympathetic. Yes. Because when they tell her, okay, we, we called your son and your daughter-in-law, they're on their way here. Like, it's time for you to go. And she, and she nicely says, you, think, you know, the jig is up. It's okay. I'll go willingly. Go ahead and cuff me type of a thing, trying to make light of it. But she just says, they, Louise says, for all intents and purposes, they don't have a sense of humor and they don't get it that I want to perform. They think that I'm a child. They treat me like a child. And so I, I acted like a child. I ran away from home. And you kind of get it. And then you meet them. And by the way, there is no interaction between them. They're like, you know what? Go back into the kitchen. We're going to send them away and tell them you've already left or you're on your way home. We're not letting them take you from here. Yeah. And then they Person open the we've door. Known for less than 24 hours. Yeah. We're, we're going to take your life into our hands. And... <laughs> and then they open the door. And like you say, there are these fucked up robots where it's like we need to short and sweet confirm that the mother is right and that the girls are making the right choice not but instead yeah but instead of making them and i guess i can understand this point of view what if they came in and these were kind of awful people not only did they not have a sense of humor but they were clearly kind of controlling bad people that she would be better away from them than under the thumb of two people who condescend to her. When she says, treat me like a child, you don't really get a, a feeling of contempt or condescension from them because they're robotic. Yeah. Um, and I guess the writers, maybe they tried it another way. Maybe they tried in rehearsals, having these people coming in and being kind of bad company. And maybe they thought that was too dark, that it looked like an abusive situation. And so they yeah. said, you know what, you know, what we can do is they're just bland. They're just boring people. And that's why she wants out of there. Yeah. She's fun and funny and they're boring. They're not abusive. Yeah. Yeah. She's fun and they're bland. Yeah. So uh, agreed on all points. Yes. And after they go, she comes back out, she thanks them, and then she says, and it's time for me to leave you guys now. And of course, it's now the, what? You're going so soon? Gee, really? Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, but she says that she found an ad in the paper for, a, a guess, a traveling dinner theater? Guess they travel with food. But she's taken her act on the road, found an ad for a dinner theater company. She's going to audition. She said, I'm planning to juggle knives for my audition. And they said, well, what are you going to do if you don't get it? And she, she has a, like, ah, I'll find something else. But um, she says, I will write to you and I will tell them, those two, where I am so they don't worry. So thanks for everything. But we can't end the episode there, gentlemen. No, we cannot. We have to end it with a joke. Uh, but. <laughs> but. But. <laughs> Before I go. Uh, it was. Uh, what was the final joke, David? What was the final nail in the coffin? Nail in the coffin. It wasn't six hundred pound gorilla, is it? Yes. Yeah. Tootie says, "Where does a six hundred pound gorilla sleep?" And Louise says, 
anywhere he wants. <laughs> Whackety smackety there. And have some gum. Uh, <laughs> wow. Wow. I like I said, I have had those. I did a sh- I did a, a birthday party at a very wealthy house in Winter Park one time where the family was literally the Louise's kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to the point where I remember, because I started to lose my temper. I was like, why did you have us here in the middle of the show? Because it was like, we did all this work to this and you've got eight people that are acting like we are literally farting in their faces. And I finally looked at this one old woman. I was like, I turned to my comedy partner and I said, maybe they're deaf. And I said, are you deaf? And the woman looked up at me and went, no. (laughs) So Philip, I know you have had, what is your worst like Louise level? Like, have you had gigs like that where you've been again, again, my only exposure to this kind of thing is meeting interruptions for the Walt Disney World Company. And for those of you listening who aren't familiar, the one of the ways the Walt Disney Company sells an association, a business association, on the idea of spending a great deal of money to come have their big association gathering at a Walt Disney World resort is they bring in representatives of the association and then they have a comedic actor burst into what is supposed to be just a here are the facts of what we can do for you kind of meeting price structure that kind of thing so kind of a dry meeting and then in comes a zany character (laughs) and sometimes it's delight (laughs) and the people are really glad and surprised to see and then of course the idea being that after this very brief interaction is over the character leaves the room and the and the salespeople go huh Right? Yeah. And we can do that for your convention, for your people. That could happen on a bigger scale. We can provide that. We're going to put you on an attraction and the attraction's going to break down and everybody's going to come out of these houses and yeah. have a street party for you and your, yeah. your team. I was yeah. driving the shuttles for those most of the time. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. okay. Ooh. The block party, the old block yeah. party. Back when there was the... Um, residential street residential street with the golden girls house and everything so yeah but what was my personal my personal experience was i had to replace someone who's going to do a meeting interruption for drum roll please the boy scouts of america a famously homophobic organization that i personally despise and so i'm not told uh, who this is I arrive at the Disney event group building and they tell me, here's the character we've come up with for you to play. I have to burst in furious that I had been backed into a corner. It was a failed interruption. No, there was no laughter. And it was because I was fuming. I was boiling with rage and not playful at all. And I, I, I just did my thing and I, and I left the room. Could it be that your character's name was Peter File? Was that- yeah, that was it. Yeah, uh huh. <laughs> David, have you had a gig? Like- you've never. Well, you've done sleuth stuff. Where sleuths I mean- mystery dinner theater does offsites. I have done them for them for many years, and there are private shows at people's homes, 
And I've done a couple of them where it's literally, you, you didn't tell your guests you were bringing in a murder mystery theater dinner show. So they're all like, we're, we're at a party and we're trying to talk to our friends. And so trying to keep attention, trying to point yeah. out, you know, this is something important. You might need to know when you pick the murderer. And I have been told, I wasn't there for it, but I have been told there have been more than one occasion where they've done the show and then they take a break before the interrogation and the client uh, basically said, look, um, you all can just, you can just go home. You can just leave. Oh my God. Not because we were terrible, not because the show was terrible, but because it was such an ill thought out venture to say, let's bring this troop of actors into our home oh. and party. It's like, guys, yeah. And, and I don't like to be in drag at a part. Like it, it's not fun for me. Mm -hmm. And it, it's immediately like you put me in drag at a party and you're like, well, just go be atmosphere. I am terrible at small talk. I am. So I just, oh, those, oh, those gigs just give me anxiety. They give me diarrhea. Oh yeah. Ugh. My skin is crawling listening to these stories because I absolutely <laughs> understand the fight or flight, yeah, awfulness, awfulness yeah. of True. these situations. Yeah. yeah, and we have self awareness, unlike Louise, who just keeps going. <laughs> Bless her heart. Bless her heart. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the the emotional illogic of this episode is is just breathtaking. It's beyond contrived. No human beings behave in a way that would have allowed this plot to proceed. Mm -mm. Nope. It, it, you have to be counterintuitive just to keep the plot going because no one would accept a stranger in their home who had shown up as the party's entertainment to begin with. Betty Keen died seven months after this episode aired, so. Wow. Wow. That, that brings me no joy whatsoever, Matthew. This was her swan song, ladies and gentlemen. Because elder abuse and mental illness in our aging population is an important problem that the facts of life is dealing with here. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think we should show some respect. Farewell, she was, Betty. She was a grand old gal. She was. She, she committed to it. I mean, at least, at least that. She, she, her commitment level was high, but yeah, the skill, was, the skill level was questionable. Yeah. Okie smoky dokey. Well, before we go, Philip, we always like to bump up the nostalgia. So, Matthew, mm -hmm. did you wanna ask? Philip, when did you first masturbate? No, 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 no. no, no, no. no, no. The um, other question <laughs> you ask all of our. Um, so Facts of Life was our show, Philip. What was yours growing up? What was appointment television for little Philip Nolan? Happy day. Oh, happy, happy days. Really? Happy days. I mean, oh. I hate to break it to you guys. I watched Happy Days where literally the phrase jumping the shark was invented for this show. Mm -hmm. And I watched it to its most decadent iterations in the very late stage where Gary Marshall was doing whatever he could to keep that franchise going. He was just pumping it full of blood. Every the, week, trying the to keep Ted McGinley, Jenny Piccolo years. Ted McGinley, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I admit, Laverne and Shirley was mine. I loved Laverne and Shirley. 
that was kind of my appointment television. So I watched Happy Days by extension. Yeah, um, but See, I didn't. I didn't watch Laverne and Shirley because the main characters were females, and I was a young gay kid. And you know, I just thought the boys were cute. Big, big fan of Tom Bosley there, Phyllis. <laughs> <laughs> he's well, cuddly. He was cuddly enough. Well, Philip, thank you so much for doing this. This has been your in your your input has been so <laughs> amusing. And guys, I want to I, I, I want to thank you for having me for easily one of the weirdest half hours of television I have ever seen. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to know where to begin with this episode. It's so illogical and there are so many random elements and inconsistencies and continuity errors. And it's clearly a show in decline where mm. this isn't even the B team, it seems to me. It's C or D string production, <laughs> you know, just we got to crank these out you know just get them out the door and you have the testimony of the costume uh person who herself said we were just cranking them out mm -hmm. i don't remember a damn thing yeah. we didn't want it good we wanted it thursday you know and uh <laughs> i didn't even take notes for this episode i literally started with my pet with my pad open and i was like i can't even there's nothing to write down it's just yeah where do you start yeah <laughs> so yeah yeah. But before the show ends, Philip, we have uh, I've got a little more than a year to go to get through all the rest of the uh, the next two seasons. Oh, this, my God. This commitment every week. I still have another little more than a year. And oh. I hope therefore you might be able to come back. Have you back on the show to do yet another one? Maybe not so weird, maybe even weirder. Who, who's to say? Uh, I'd, I'd be honored and delighted to join you two delightful men again. Aww. And again, what I, what I really appreciate about this is that there really is something to be said about being put through terrible entertainment in the company of friends. It's, it's, it's the camaraderie of the trenches. You know, I think, I think we get closer when we suffer together. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's, that's a beautiful way to look at it. And, and Philip, yeah. I can't think of anybody I would rather suffer more with than you. <laughs> <laughs> when I think of suffering through entertainment, I think Philip Nolan. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, Smooches, my dear, we'll talk to you again soon. And goodbye. Mwah. Goodbye. Pure delight. Farewell. Mm. And there you have it. That was Philip Nolan. A couple of follow-up things. First of all, I didn't know the composers of Happy Days Are Here Again, and I was like, oh God, I know it's probably somebody big, like an Irving Berlin or a whatever. Uh, no, it's not. It's from 1929, and it's uh, music by Milton Ager and lyrics by Jack Yellen. They've written other standards, certainly, but uh, they're not that familiar to me because <laughs> they didn't write for Broadway. <laughs> Secondly, as I was re-listening to our commentary about that weird son and daughter-in-law couple and bringing up the height of whether he is short or she is tall, it, something still rubbed me wrong about it. I was like, there was something weird about that whole sequence. So I went back and looked at it again. Sure enough, 
Blair opens the door and you see the son walk in. And then we cut to the two first shot of just the son and daughter-in-law as they enter the room and see them standing side by side. And then the entire conversation, we never see them outside of that shot and then you know, medium close-up cutaways of the girls talking to them, cutting back and forth. And then when they say goodbye, they do their simultaneous wave. They turn around, and then that is the only other time we see them in a wide shot as they walk out the door. You never actually see her face at any point while any of the Facts of Life girls are on camera. Huh? Part of me is like, was there a stand-in? Did they film it at a different time? Did they recast the part of the daughter at the last minute? Uh, it's very strange. Uh, clearly, uh, he is taller than the girls, and she is taller than him. So I think what's going on there is that uh, she is tall, and you can see that. And you wonder if, was they were they trying to mask that? Is that why we we literally only see her from the back when she's in a shot with the girls as she takes the two steps out the door? So strange. Clearly contrived, clearly set up very specifically that way, and I can't figure out the reason why it's so strange. If you have any ideas, write to me, comment on Facebook, and uh, let me know what you think. Anyway, next week we're going to be watching Season 7, Episode 21, called The Candidate. And it's uh, also known as probably the worst hair episode for Lisa Welchel. I'm preparing myself because it's uh, going to be a little traumatic seeing our beautiful, gorgeous Blair with uh, unflattering hair. And uh, it's already making me a little sad ahead of time. If you want to see the episode and or her hair, you can watch the show for free at dailymotion.com or at Pluto TV. I will post links in this week's show notes and on this episode's webpage. That is all for now. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by the wonderful David Almeida. Our theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Please visit facethefactspod.com for supplemental photos and videos, links to social media, and ways that you can support the show. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This is Matthew Arder saying tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts. <laughs>